0: That switching to American gas rather than Russian gas is just again to put European energy supplies at the mercy of geopolitics. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gothop. Apologies if this is a somewhat low energy episode of America Explained. I've once again got COVID for the second time this year. I've been knocked out for pretty much the last week. I'm hoping that I can uh, get through recording this podcast without too much breathlessness. But if, I, if it goes silent for like 30 seconds, then you know I've probably passed out. Don't worry, I'll get up again and carry on if I'm capable. I think that the topic that we have for this week is is pretty appropriate given I've got covid We're going to talk this week about the winter energy crisis. This is something that we've been talking about actually, you know, all year, how we thought that Europe and other parts of the world were going to have a really tough winter because of this big shakeup that's occurred. global energy markets due to the war in Ukraine. Now, the topic kind of fell out of the news a little bit because we had a spell of really unseasonably warm weather over the fall, but winter is about to begin. Uh, Living in the Netherlands, I pretty much always think it's winter, but actually meteorologists will tell you that the winter begins on December 21st. So when that happens, we expect, well, in fact, already we're experiencing much colder weather And if this is a particularly cold winter, then it really could be very problematic for Europe, could cause a lot of hardship, and it could also perhaps undermine the Western coalition, which is currently supporting Ukraine. That's even before we get into thinking about what next winter is going to look like because here in Europe we're really running down our energy stockpiles just to get through the next few months and we don't really have a good plan for what's going to happen one year from now. So what's happening here, what's the outlook in the coming months and how have the geopolitics of the world been reshaped by um, this change in energy markets. That's the topic of today's episode. Thanks again for listening to America Explained. If you enjoy it, please do tell a friend and consider subscribing to our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. So, to understand how all this began, it's important to remember that before the war, Europe received nearly half of its natural gas from Russia and its state-owned energy company Gazprom. Now, this has pretty much always been controversial in Europe, but key European countries, particularly Germany, argued that Russia could be seen as economically reliable, despite everything else that it was doing geopolitically. And, you know, Germany, other countries like Italy were at the forefront of making this argument, and they were also at the forefront of consuming the most Russian gas. So it was kind of a pretty obvious example of um, ideas following material interests. Others, and particularly US policymakers, have long argued that relying on Russia for energy was actually a really bad idea because this energy dependence could be weaponized in a conflict. And they turned out to be right. That's exactly what happened. In the months after the invasion... Russian gas exports to Europe dwindled and then they've now virtually stopped. And it's important to emphasize that this was actually mainly due to Russia's weaponization of gas. It wasn't due to a decision by Europe to stop importing gas now that the war had begun. Given the importance of that gas to Europe's energy mix, a lot of policymakers in Europe would have been glad to keep taking it. But the main factor has been that Moscow has decided to use gas as a weapon to try to freeze Europe out and undermine its support for Ukraine. So this all kind of began when soon after the invasion, European countries in order to avoid violence violating the sanctions that they'd put on Russia, moved to start paying for gas in euros instead of rubles. And then Russia just kind of used this as an excuse to cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria in April, and then steadily diminish and reduce the gas supplies that it was sending to Europe via Nord Stream 1, which is the main pipeline that that carries gas, gas to Europe. And they they kind of steadily lowered the amount of gas they were sending through there. They kept shutting it down for a few days. And then finally, they halted it completely at the end of August. Russia said at the time that this halt was temporary and it was just due to maintenance work. But then in September, somebody blew several massive holes in Nord Stream 1 in an act of sabotage. And while there's no definitive proof of who did that yet, it seems overwhelmingly likely that it was Russia. It's just not really in the interest of any other actor in this conflict to have done this because Europe actually would quite like that gas. America, although it has these long-term concerns about European dependence on Russian gas, you know, is worried about the short-term implications of the energy crisis in, in Europe. So it's only really Russia who, who had the interest in, in blowing those holes in that pipeline and really trying to to then use the resultant energy crisis in Europe to try to force Europe to remove its support for Ukraine. Now, Russia's attempt to weaponize energy in this way has played into what's actually been a very divisive issue among EU member states. There's long been a difference of opinion in the EU about energy, and particularly about the energy transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. And in general, Europe has been moving steadily away from, from producing its own natural gas, as part of the energy transition, so for instance in the Netherlands there's a gas field in Groningen which was shut down not that long ago, but ironically shutting down domestic gas as part of the energy transition actually in the short term made the EU much more reliant on imports of gas from Russia. And now that the availability of those imports is cratering and the price is going through the roof, European consumers have been left unsure if they can stay warm this winter, and businesses have been left with these massive bills that they're struggling to pay and that's threatening to tip the continent into recession. So, exactly how bad could it get this winter? Well, at both the EU and the national levels, officials have put measures in place to avoid a complete catastrophe. The EU has called for voluntary gas demand reductions of about 15% between August and March, and European countries have also spent about 700 billion euros on subsidies to keep prices at below market levels. Some countries like Belgium and Germany have also postponed closures of nuclear power plants and and there's been some efforts to revitalize coal which of course is highly polluting but is at least something that can be bought back online at fairly short notice. Unlike gas by the way it's very difficult to bring domestic gas production back online again so that's not really happening. But so as a result of these measures it seems unlikely that we're going to face a complete catastrophe this winter although it's not impossible. The EU has been pretty cagey about its plans if things get worse and, and by get worse I mean, basically, if we have like a very, very cold winter, which is going to send gas and demand through the roof. And in that in that case, we might see rationing a car. If that does happen, then I think it's pretty clear that businesses are going to get rationed before consumers. No European government is you no know, going to cut off heating to consumers if it can possibly avoid that. Because then you know you're going to see people freezing to death in their homes and that government been blamed for that. And it's not likely that that's going to happen, but we also, you know, we should remember that actually even just high prices already discourage some people, particularly elderly people, people on marginal incomes from heating their homes as much as they otherwise would. And this can contribute to deaths. That's something that happens, you know, just in in a regular bad winter, but in a winter with prices this high, that's almost definitely going to happen in some places. And given Given the importance of gas in electricity generation, there's also the chance of blackouts and brownouts. This is something that France and other countries have already warned might be coming. So it really depends on how bad the winter gets. You know, that influences the extent to which we see these problems. People have already actually made comparisons between this winter and the winter of 1946-1947 when you had this confluence of several events. So one was that this was the aftermath of World War II, so there was just absolute economic and industrial and social devastation all across Europe. And that was one of the worst winters in memory. There were record amounts of snow and freezing temperatures and so this led to coal rationing, power cuts and severe food shortages. And It's actually one of the reasons why the US came up with a Marshall Plan aid after World War II to try and get European countries back on their feet. Now this year doesn't, you know, it's not going to be as bad as that winter. But it is definitely the first time since then that Europe has been so dependent on just what happens with the weather to support its basic functions. Now, things aren't looking, like I said, as bad as the winter of 1946-47 and that's mostly because there are still stores of Russian gas in European storage facilities. But actually, next year might be even worse because, you know, next year, those storage facilities are going to be depleted. There's no real way of refilling them quickly enough. And also, particularly if the Chinese economy really powers back into action over the next year as it lifts its zero COVID policy, then that's going to really push up global energy prices even more than they are at the moment, which could make next winter really, really bad. Um, Although, of course, there's many factors that we don't know about what the situation will be like next year. But it's important, to, to just emphasize that the way that Europe is coping with this winter is not going to work next winter. It's also important to remember that no matter, no matter how bad things do or don't get this year, the people who will suffer are those who are already suffering. There's already been a lot of stories from the UK about things like people not charging their le- electric wheelchairs because they can't afford it, families planning to sleep all in one room because that's all that they can afford to heat. There's, as I mentioned, always this perennial problem with elderly people dying from the cold because they can't afford to heat their homes. And, you know, this is against the backdrop of populations that are already struggling due to a high cost of living before this energy crisis even hit. It's also really not clear if this strategy of voluntary cutbacks is really going to continue to be effective in the case of really cold weather. So back in September, there was kind of a cold spell in parts of Germany. And this was met by this, like, huge uptake in German demand for gas. It was actually higher than it had been in previous years. So that's not a good sign of what's going to happen to demand when things get really cold. And it suggests that the the way that we've kind of coped with this problem over the last few months has basically just been because the weather has been warmer than usual for this time of year. All of these fears about energy this winter have, though, led to various attempts to alleviate the crisis at the EU level by pushing for further integration, and also important developments for Europe's relationship with America and for the future of transatlantic cooperation. That's what I'm going to get to after the break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. For the most part during the war on Ukraine, we've seen really impressive unity within the EU and also between the EU and the US. They've stood together really well, actually much better than I anticipated when it comes to sanctions and when it comes to arms and helping Ukraine. And when it comes to energy policy, there's also been a lot of cooperation with potentially some really far-reaching geopolitical implications going forward. So the EU and the US created a joint task force to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. Now that phrase joint task force might not inspire a lot of confidence in real action, but actually there has been a pretty good amount of action in this space. And a lot of this has been to do with liquefied natural gas or LNG. Now this is basically gas that is turned into a liquid form to make it more concentrated and more able to be transported by ship. So it's basically transformed into a liquid in the US, it's put on a ship, it's brought to Europe, and then it's got off the ship and regasified, and then it can just become regular natural gas that can go into the EU energy grid. And the US has hugely increased its export of LNG to the EU over the course of this year. So in 2021, the US exported about 22 billion cubic meters of LNG to the EU, but by October of this year it had exported already 40 billion cubic meters, and they've committed to supplying about 50 billion every year between now and 2030. That's actually around one third of the gas that Europe was previously importing from Russia, which is quite a significant amount, you know, it really plugs some if not all of this hole. It's possible that the EU can reduce or eliminate its dependence on Russian gas with LNG and also with some other avenues, but it will take time and it's very, very expensive. The EU has already increased its gas imports from other places as well, including Norway and Azerbaijan, the UK, North Africa. But, you know, this isn't going to be enough to make up the whole shortfall and also these countries need gas as well. It's also the case that this increased reliance on LNG comes at a price. It's very, very expensive to build the infrastructure at port terminals to handle LNG and it also takes a really long time. Now in Germany there's been really really long resistance to developing this infrastructure. Much of that was due to the influence of political um, and and, and lobbying interests who were really bought into this idea that Germany should get its gas from Russia. They've been making Germany's acquisition of LNG infrastructure really difficult and really slow and there wasn't really the political will to do anything about that so far. That means that there just is no not enough of this infrastructure right now to to bring on shore as much LNG as Europe needs, and building that infrastructure can take years, actually up to five years. But if if this does become a long-term trend, even if it's not going to help Europe enough next winter, it will have long-term geopolitical consequences. So a really important aspect of the EU reducing its energy dependence on Russia is that it's going to become more dependent for its energy on the US, the us only actually began exporting lng in 2016 after years of expansion of shale natural gas production in states like pennsylvania and texas and in the west and this is the first global crisis of its of its kind in which the U.S. has been a major, major producer of both oil and gas. And we're seeing how this gives the U.S. a new geopolitical tool with which to support its allies and shape their allegiance. This dependency actually gives the U.S. leverage over Europe in future crises, and it takes that leverage away from Russia because Europe can rely on the US for a big portion of its energy needs, that means that it has more of an incentive to place itself in America's corner In this crisis against Russia and perhaps in a future crisis against China as well. So this looks in the long term like it's going to harden attitudes and interests in the EU further against Russia and China while also improving links with the US. It's also worth noting, you know, another thing that that's caught my attention geopolitically here is that Russia hasn't really achieved its goal of dividing and weakening the EU through this energy weapon, at least yet anyway. There have been some instances of countries putting their own citizens first, and, and you know, pursuing what we call these beggar thy neighbor policies, where you do something that helps your own citizens, but hurts everybody else in other countries. So one example of this was when Germany announced a price cap on gas at the end of October. This enabled German consumers to use gas more cheaply because, you know, due to the German government's price cap, they wouldn't pay enough for it. But that actually in- encourages them to use more gas and to increase their demand. And that can then force prices up for everybody else, because in a global market, more demand in Germany means higher prices for people in Spain or in Portugal or in Greece. Now, generally, we haven't seen many moves like this, definitely not as many as we might have expected in kind of worst case scenarios, but the EU still hasn't been able to agree on a continent-wide gas policy, which might include a price cap and the joint purchase of gas in order to enhance solidarity. Actually just yesterday they had a marathon meeting in which they again failed to reach agreement on this and we expect another meeting next week where maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen, but this is still part of the story that remains to be written so we don't know if in the future as things get worse major divisions might emerge within Europe, but it is notable that it hasn't happened yet and I think we can be cautiously optimistic that it will be avoided. If Europe can't get its act together on these proposals though, then it faces another long-term challenge, which is just that if gas prices and electricity prices are going to remain high for a long time, that's going to lead to a really significant long-term contraction of business and manufacturing activity within Europe. So some major corporations have already begun to say that they cannot envisage further investment in Europe, if energy prices don't get under control, and the long-term nature of this problem means that this could be a drag on the continent's economy and on new investment for years to come. Now, ironically, the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act and the separate Chips Act, both of which provide hundreds of billions of industrial subsidies to American companies, are actually only going to weaken Europe Europe further because they they'll divert investment from europe to the us because right now america due to this legislation and because of its greater ability to weather the energy crisis just looks like a much much more significant investment and you know a much better investment destination than europe does right now and that's particularly the case in green energy and actually indeed the european climate transition is also been affected more broadly by this energy crisis and that's what i'm going to talk about briefly after the break <laughs> You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. We've also seen some worrying signs that the winter energy crisis could undo European progress on climate change. The crisis has led the EU to put their climate goals on hold in some respects, and of course the biggest winners from the rising prices have been fossil fuel companies. Countries like Greece, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, these have all increased coal production in response to this crisis, and or bought formerly mothballed coal power plants back online. France, which has long been seen as a nuclear powerhouse of Europe has been having issues with its nuclear power plants and it's also turning back to coal, and we've also seen a resurgence of really drastically increased logging and wood harvesting in parts of Central and Eastern Europe. So we are really starting to see a kind of environmental backsliding across Europe, but on the other hand, I don't want to be too pessimistic about this because I think there's a chance that even if energy policy is worse for the climate in the short term in Europe, this war really creates a huge incentive to make it much better in the long term. Europe's long-standing dependence on Russian gas was really never smart to begin with, and even though it took this war for Europe to realize this, some countries are actually now beginning to accelerate their green transitions because of it. And actually having a, a, a really kind of good green transition in Europe is really the only way for Europe to become resilient, because like I mentioned before the break, that switching to American gas rather than Russian gas is just again to put European energy supplies at the mercy of geopolitics. You know, you don't know in the future if that gas is going to safely be able to get to Europe, for instance, in the event of a major conflict. You don't know what might happen with American policy in the future if, say, Donald Trump returns to power. So having a domestic energy transition and Europe getting a lot of its energy domestically from renewable sources is really the only way to actually make sure that Europe has a resilient energy mix going forward. And we are seeing now some efforts to really kind of scale and speed up renewables like solar power and renewable hydrogen within Europe. Now, not all of these efforts are without controversy. Of course, there are lots of planning and even environmental issues that get thrown up by wind farms, by massive solar generation facilities. Um, hydrogen pipelines are also proven to be controversial in some countries. But ultimately, I think given the potential to turn back to fossil fuels in the future, that's something that should be best avoided. And countries around the world, including the EU and the US, really have to convince their publics that green energy can be a solution to the crises that we're seeing this winter rather than the cause of them, which is somehow how the, you know, this gets framed that way sometimes you see, right-wing politicians and commentators saying well, you know, if we hadn't shut down all the coal plants and we were still burning coal and our own gas, we wouldn't have this problem with Russia. Well, okay, maybe to some extent that's true, but we would also be having catastrophic climate change at a much greater rate than we are. And what this crisis has really shown us is how fragile and lacking in resilience and susceptible to geopolitical changes a fossil fuel-based economy is. So if it can encourage countries to get on with the energy transition and get away from this type of economy, That would at least be one good thing to come out of this war. Thanks a lot for listening to America Explained. I hope you have a really great holiday season and we'll be back with another episode in the new year. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.